our witness and how we should be good witnesses. We want to make certain that we are understanding what Paul is directing us to do and not to do. And I fear that oftentimes the passage that we have before us is misinterpreted and misapplied and leads to confusion and error in evangelism. There are significant problems. We'll talk about some of those this morning as it relates to the right and wrong way to be an effective witness for Christ. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul gives us instruction. The predicate for a sound witness is prayer. And that prayer is directed to the issue of being a witness, praying for opportunities to present the gospel, which I think is significant for us to be mindful of. Each of us praying for the other, that the Lord will open doors for us to um, proclaim the gospel. Be careful about that. He'll do it. He'll do it. And as we know from the book of Revelation, while the word is sweet, oftentimes the occasions that are given to do the proclamation that we're called to do can be bitter, can be difficult, can lead to persecution. But as we read um, in Sunday school and uh, this morning as well in terms of uh, God's preservation of us, um, though people may persecute us, they cannot take our souls away. And so we are always secure in the finished work of Christ. And death is really victory for us, is it not? There is no sting to it. There is no harm in it other than to be separated from this old dark world. I think as Christians we need to be um, better theologians about that, about death, I think, at times. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll begin to unpackage this verse. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our time together. We thank you for the occasion to be in your word together as the redeemed of Christ, saints gathered together, encouraging each other, loving each other, being a witness to the world in the context of how we love each other, making known our position in Christ by Our love for each other, people will see this, people will understand that about us, and that will mark us as your disciples. Help us to be better at that. We pray, Lord, for wisdom as we look into these verses about being an effective witness for you. Help us to have a good, clear understanding of your word this morning. Bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would guide us through your word, guard us, and protect us from the evil one. Thank you, Lord, so much for being so gracious to us. Thank you for your loving kindness to us. We are definitely undeserving, and you are always consistent. You are always faithful. We rejoice in your love for us. Great is your faithfulness towards us. We praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Paul in Colossians chapter 4, beginning with verse 2, writes as follows, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word, not your opinion, right? 
Opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. But the word is unique, is it not? It is the word. And I, I, it's just remarkable to me how providentially we are in Revelation chapter 10 and 11 with this. I, I mean, I, re- I didn't plan it that way. I wasn't even going to teach through the book of Revelation. I was going to kind of do a jet tour thing of it and move on. But here we are. The Lord is good, isn't he? And so the Lord has opened doors for us in that way. He says, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And so we've been taking the time to unpackage the meaning of these verses. We've looked at verse 5. We understand that we ought to be aware of the fact that we are dealing with the unregenerate. Wisdom is knowledge in action. We know who the unregenerate are. We know that the unregenerate have a certain mindset that is counter to God's Word, and so we need to be alert to that. That's a baseline predicate for being an effective witness. Know your audience. Know your audience. You know, when I go into a courtroom to try a case and there's a jury, there's a process called voir dire, where we get to question the jurors about their background, their experiences, who they are, what they listen to on TV and all sorts of things, the books they read. You learn the person because as you learn about them, you kind of know their inclinations in certain regards. And so you learn your audience through that process of voir dire. Well, we've been going through the process of learning about who Jesus Christ is in the book of Colossians, who we were before God saved us. We understand that we were hostile towards him, alienated, separated from him, and that he reconciled us. And so that's the audience that we're dealing with in terms of the proclamation of the gospel. The Great Commission is directed towards those people. And so your task as the redeemed of Christ is to go into this dark, fallen world and be salt and light witnesses of the gospel, not living the gospel or being the gospel. We've debunked those ridiculous myths and slogans, but to proclaim the word. Notice that Paul prayed that there would be opportunities for us for the word, to preach the word. That's what he was asking for. And of course, we seek the same thing. And so in verse 5, he begins to lay the foundations for how it is that we can be a good witness. We take advantage of the opportunities that God gives to us, and we use those open doors not to do, as we've talked about before, spread a little Jesus jelly on people's problems, to kind of smear a little bit of Jesus over everyone's issues and problems and hope that they like us enough that they might do something in some context. No, but to give them the gospel. And the gospel is about the fact that they need a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. And there's a reason that He's the Savior. We're going to talk about the three R's of evangelism in a moment as we get into the message. The idea of ruin, redemption, and regeneration is essential to the proclamation that you and I make. We need to make people understand that they're ruined, that they're in need of redemption, and that they must be born again. And we'll get more into that in a moment. 
But verse 6 is the passage that we're looking at in particular. We've been unpackaging it. We talked last week about the idea of our witness in terms of our conduct. Christ would tell his disciples that they will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love each other. That will be the main indicator. That will be the main mark. People will know that you're different because you love each other. We looked at those passages and we considered them. We unpackaged that in terms of the meaning of it. We looked at the passages in 1 John that is um, significant in terms of the call to be loving towards each other and the mark of the redeemed as being loving people with each other in the context of the church. And so today, I want to take time then to talk more about the idea of the actual engagement with people, the idea of being a witness. Paul says in verse 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And so we're going to take the time to look at that. The idea here is one of soul winning, is it not? That's what it's oftentimes called. Charles Spurgeon wrote a book called The Soul Winner. Got it right here. I'm going to read some things from it. It's a great book, and I commend it to you. I hope to have some on the book table next week for you to purchase and put in your library if it's not there already. And what we're ultimately concerned about is the idea of souls that are perishing. The idea is that we need to communicate the gospel to people who are perishing. These aren't people who are already on their way, but these are people who are on the wrong way. They're not on the narrow way, they're on the wide path to destruction. And that path is full of a lot of people, the Bible says so, does it not? It's jam-packed, there's a traffic jam on it. And they're in desperate need to hear the gospel. And so Paul says that we need to be attentive to that, we need to understand who our audience is, and we need to make certain that our speech is gracious in the context of how the gospel is presented seasoned with salt. That is savory, tasteful, desirable. That's interesting. Salt does what? It adds flavor and, and good taste, right? Now, husbands, you need to be careful when you ask your wife to pass the salt at dinner, of course. We're not talking about that necessarily, but our speech, our conduct, I mean, our, our communication with people about the gospel needs to be savory. There needs to be something to it. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul would also speak to this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll look at that in a moment. But I want to instill in you a sense of urgency, too, about the idea of soul winning, the idea of communicating the gospel, of being an evangelist. Spurgeon said this, I cannot believe that you will ever pluck a brand from the burning without putting your hand near enough to fill the heat of the fire. You must have more or less a distinct sense of the dreadful wrath of God and of the terrors of the judgment to come, or you will lack energy in your work and so lack one of the essentials of success. I think that's important. And again, that goes back to what Paul says in verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards the outsiders. The outsiders are doing what? They're perishing. They're going to hell. They're under judgment. We know that from the book of Revelation, do we not? in a very vivid way, in a very clear way. The book of Revelation pulls no punches. It tells us that they're under condemnation. The judgment is severe. It's terrible. It's horrible. 
Spurgeon says we need to have a sense of that. Do you have a sense of that, friends? I, I think oftentimes that we have gotten ourselves into a context in which we think everyone is just okay. We're comfortable. We have nice homes. We drive nice cars. We have good jobs. We're fairly successful. We eat anything and everything that we want. We have good medication. We live in luxury. In the context of human existence, there's never been anything quite like this. And I think because of that, we oftentimes get blinded to the peril of the souls that are around us, even within our own homes. Friends, they're dying people who are going to hell. Spurgeon is saying, you need to have a sense of that. You need to understand and recognize, and Paul is saying the same thing to this. Know your audience. These are the same people that you were. Let's just go back for a minute and be reminded of that. Look at Colossians chapter 1 again, and let's use Paul's own words. Colossians 1.21, this is your audience. These are the people to whom you are witnessing. You were once one of them. I think oftentimes we forget that, don't we? We, we forget who we were at one time. This is you. Right here. 121, and although you were formally alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, We've talked about the meaning of the passage, the beautiful picture that's painted there, the trophy of grace that we are in Christ, presented to the Father as belonging to the Son. He is mine. Nothing can take him from me. I love him. He is here with us. All this, has been, all this is gone. This alienation, the hostility has been transformed. Paul talks about that in Romans, does he not? in a state of enmity, a state of fixed hostility. These are the people that we're talking about. These are the people to whom you're witnessing. And we want to make certain that, as Paul exhorts us to do in verse 6, that, that we're presenting a message that has some appeal to it, that has some, that has some efficacy, that has some desirability in it. Not just some bland, passe, blah type of message, but the add something to it that adds savor to it and flavor and vivid colors, the story of redemption, the picture of it, how wonderful it is to be the redeemed of Christ, what it means to you and that this is available to them as well. That God's grace is extended to all who will believe and that we can present that message to people. Spurgeon in his little book, well, not so little, but in his book, nonetheless, at the beginning, in chapter 1, says this. It's entitled, What is it to win a soul? Think of this when he says this. He writes as follows, I purpose, dear ones, if God will enable me to give you a short course under the general heading of the soul winner. Soul winning, he writes, is the chief business of the Christian. Now think about this for a minute. Soul winning is the chief business of the Christian. That's important. Indeed, it should be the main pursuit of every true believer. 
we should each say with Simon Peter, I go fishing, John 21, 3. And our aim should be along with Paul that I might by all means save some, 1 Corinthians 9, 22. 9, 22. Well, this begs the question then, what does this look like for us? How do we engage in this process of witnessing as it relates to this idea of being a soul winner? The Proverbs speaks to this issue in some context. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. Verse 30. Proverbs 11.30 says this, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. Now, is this a call to some type of witness evangelism? Not necessarily. But what it does speak to is the idea that there is a manner in which, again, we are living that attracts people to us in the context of opportunities for gospel proclamation. The way that we conduct ourselves, we spoke to some of these issues last week, the way that we may relate to our husband or our wife, the way that we raise our children, the way that we engage with others in a variety of different contexts. Paul talks about that new creational lifestyle in the book of Colossians. In chapter 3, he talks about the fact that Christians have used certain virtues in their lives that are demonstrated in real time, in real life, in a real way. And the proverb writes, the Solomon writes this, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Their example, their living, their conduct, their behavior. And by and through that, you may have the opportunities to communicate the gospel. Paul uses that same type of idea in verse 6. And in verse 5, taking most of the opportunities that are presented and also presenting the gospel in a way that is appealing and meaningful and savory to people. Now, Paul would then engage in an interesting discussion about this issue. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians. And let's just go ahead and swallow the frog. Because this passage creates a lot of confusion for people. And in conjunction with Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, it's often misinterpreted and misapplied to mean compromise rather than effective witnessing. I've heard many take these passages and twist them into some sort of exhortation to compromise on all fronts in order to proclaim the gospel. But this is not what Paul is talking about. Colossians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law is under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law is without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. 
to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might be all, by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I might become a fellow partaker of it. Now, you read that in conjunction with Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, that says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. It's basically the same idea, the same, the same application can be made being wise about who the audience is and making certain that you're attentive to the things that are going on, the restrictions that may be, they may be under or the freedoms that they may have. This is ultimately what Paul is talking about, being winsome in a way that is appealing in the context of your character in person as to present and open doors for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And to do so with a saltiness, not in an edgy way, but in a savory way, a flavorful way. So with Paul, he makes it abundantly clear for us in the context of his own ministry that he was prepared on certain issues to, to yield on certain matters that were not of biblical, critical importance, that were not gospel-connected. We know this to be the case for Paul, right? He would ultimately call Peter out in the book of Galatians for doing what? Caving into the Judaizers. Paul, Peter, that's an example of what Paul is not talking about. Peter was caving into the Judaizer and making the Gentiles get circumcised and applying all of those things to them and saying that salvation was connected to that and, and falling back into a works-based form of righteousness. Paul is not advocating that. It's interesting, though, what Paul would do is this. When he took Timothy with him to witness to the Jews, he did what to Timothy? Timothy had to do what? Be circumcised. Why? Because he knew that would be an important issue for that Jewish audience. They would not hear him or Timothy, and Timothy in particular, if he did not engage in that ceremonial process. And by so doing, and doing that, and think about that for a minute, guys. That's a, that's a big ask, I think, isn't it? He had opportunity then to proclaim the gospel. Now, Timothy getting circumcised did not require him to cave in on any other critical issue related to Scripture. Most importantly, a works-based form of righteousness. Correct? It opened doors but it did not compromise the gospel. The same thing for the weaker brother. Paul uses the analogy and the example of offering meat to idols and eating that meat. And there were some who said, never, may it never be. And there are others who said it was perfectly fine. And if Paul was in the audience with it said, may it never be, Paul would not eat the meat that was offered to idols. But if he was elsewhere, he might. In the context of having doors open and opportunities presented, in order to proclaim the gospel. This is ultimately what is going on here. This does not mean what so many have taken it to mean. So, for example, Mark Driscoll, several years ago, wrote a book called The Radical Reformation. And in that book, he basically takes what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 9 and elsewhere and says that we use that then to engage in compromising activities in order to proclaim the gospel. In a portion of the book, he talks about going into gay bars, that Christians should go into gay bars to proclaim the gospel. 
This would be akin to saying, I'm going to be a witness in San Francisco. I'm going to go to San Francisco. And in order to be an effective witness in San Francisco, I'm going to begin to engage in the activities and the lifestyle of the homosexual community that permeates that city. I'm going, to, I'm going to be engaged in their activities. I'm going to go and, and do the things that they do and be a part of what they do. That's not what Paul is saying, and that's absolutely wrong, and Paul would condemn that. Look at Romans chapter 6 for a moment. Of course he says this... Romans chapter 6, verse 1. After talking about the implications of our justification and the freedom that we have in Christ, it begs the question at times in people's mind, well, I'm going to sin that grace may bound in greater depths and lengths. And what does Paul say to that? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Verse 2, look at it. May it never be! It's an explanation point. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And he goes on to talk about what it means to be buried in Christ and raised in the newness of his life and to live in the context of all of that. Being dead to sin, alive to Christ. And so our witness does not require us, nor should we read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to mean that somehow this is a call to compromise in our morals or in any other type of thing. Paul would even say this. Verse 21, to those who are without the law, 1 Corinthians 9, 21, to those who are without the law as without law. So he is not going to go into a group of Gentiles and require them or to engage in Jewish ritual practices. He's not going to require them to be circumcised like Peter did, caving into the Judaizers, which is the predicate for the book of Galatians. To those who are without the law is without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of what? Christ. The law of Christ still contains the implications of the moral restrictions of the law, right? Christ did not abrogate those things. It's just that the law is in his hand, which I'm glad for in terms of the rigors and the requirements of the law. The law in the hand of Christ is the picture. We see that in Pilgrim's Progress when um, Moses is beating faithful with the rod of the law. But he doesn't go in and impose all sorts of requirements. But if he's with the Jews, then he is going to engage in things that are of a, I guess, neutral matter. They're not, they're not things connected to the gospel. He's not having to implicate or agree with any idea that would bring in works to, the salva to salvation. And we have to be careful about those same things. I would even submit to you, I heard a man one time say that he allowed his four-year-old son to call his two gay next-door neighbors men who were living together his uncle. I think that was wrong. That is not the way we ought to do things. That's, that, that carries it too far. I think that violates the very principles that Paul's setting forth for us here, both in Colossians and in 1 Corinthians. 
There's another way to witness to those men without implicating your child in their sin and allowing them to partake in it and to normalize it by calling them uncle or uncles. That's wrong. But at the same time, you can be neighborly. You can loan them your shovel. You might even help them plant grass in their yard. You can do things of that nature. You can share their food, your food with them. Be kind. They're your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself, correct? If you think they're your enemy, then what? You're going to love your enemy. And how are you going to love them? Well, you're going to love them like you love yourself. You're going to do the things that you would do for yourself. Feed yourself. Care for yourself. Be available. But without compromising in their sin. This is why Paul talks about what he does here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, let your speech always be with grace. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't tell people about sin, right? Spurgeon says it well. We have to make certain that we get them to the point where they understand the ruin part of the issue related to salvation, the redemption part, and the regeneration part. Christ was gracious to Nicodemus, was he not? Nicodemus came to Christ at night. He wanted to cut the deal. He wanted to be the big deal. He saw Christ was trending in the polls. And so he, was gonna, he wanted a seat at the table. He wanted to be a member of the cabinet. And so he comes to him at night and says, Hey, you know what? I'm a, you know, I'm a big deal. I'm the leader. If you want somebody, it's me. It's the idea, I think, is what's going on there. And Christ says what to him? You must be born again and begins to explain to him exactly what that means. Even taking him back into the analogy of Scripture related to the washing that's required in the context of regeneration and the work of the Holy Spirit and God's sovereignty and salvation and all of those things and explaining that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And all of those things in contrasting the regenerate from the unregenerate, we too do the same thing. This is what Paul is saying to us in that context. And so, friends, we need to be careful. As the person in Proverbs 11.30, we, we attract, a wise person attracts others to wisdom and the tree of life produced by a righteous life. That's the same thing that we talked about last week with regard to the idea of our loving each other. You'll know, people will know you're my disciples, Christ says, by the way you love each other. Proverbs 11.30 captures that idea. And then when the door opens, you present to them the gospel. Now again, let's make certain that we're understanding what that looks like and what that means. Here again is Spurgeon in his book, The Soul Winner. He says partway into chapter 1 the following, which I think is quite appropriate. What is the real winning of a soul for God, he says. He asks this question. As far as this is done by instrumentality, what are the processes by which a soul is led to God into salvation? I take it that one of its main operations consists of instructing a person so that he may know the truth of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is, is going to still proclaim the truth of God. He's going to tell the Jews that they need Christ. He's going to tell the Gentiles that they need Christ. And he's going to wisely use opportunities to open those doors to present the gospel so that what? Some might be saved. 
In the book of Acts, in Acts 17, when Paul goes to Mars Hill and he's talking with the Gentiles, we understand and see in that amazing simple colloquy that he has with them that God saves some people. As a consequence of Paul's witness and testimony. And so here, Spurgeon is saying this same thing. I take it that one of its main operations consists of instructing a person so that he may know the truth of God. When you're witnessing to tell somebody, you need to tell them who they are in the context of their relationship with God. Do you not? Well, what's the point? What, just this kind of therapeutic moral deism? Again, get the Jesus jelly smeared over their problem. Oh, they kind of seem like they're happy about that. You think you've done it. That's not it. That's not witnessing. That's nothing. That's just a pleasant conversation. No, it may not be pleasant because those kind of conversations leave people in their sin and their desperate state. It doesn't point anybody to Christ in terms of salvation and their need for a Savior. So Spurgeon goes on to say this, instruction by the gospel is the commencement of a real work upon men's minds. This is what Paul is talking about in Colossians 6.4. Spurgeon quotes Matthew 28.19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. The Great Commission Teaching begins the work and crowns it too, he says. He continues to write, The gospel according to Isaiah is this, Incline your ear and come unto me here, and, you sh- and your soul shall live. Isaiah 55, 3. It is ours then to give men something worth their hearing. So Paul says, flavor it with salt. Make it savory. What, what do men need to hear? What do men desperately need to hear? They need to hear about their plight before God and the fact that Jesus Christ is the answer, the resolution, the solution to the problem. But you've got to get them to the point where they under, that, that, that you're actually talking about that. Telling people that your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ has led to your success and that you're comfortable and that you're happy because of it, again, is not the gospel. That, that's not going to do anything, friend. And this is, what, this is what Spurgeon and Paul are saying. You've got to know your audience and you need to get to the place where you're actually talking to them about what God says about them. John, in Revelation chapter 10, again, The words of God are like honey. They're sweet to us, but our taste buds have been regenerated. The worlds have not. And they may hate you for what you say, but you still proclaim it. Isaiah, incline your ear and come unto me. Incline your ear, listen. Give them something to listen to. Don't entertain them. Don't amuse them to death. It's sad to me that when you go into a church... And the music is longer than the preaching. 30, 40, 50 minutes of music and a 10-minute sermonette TED Talk. That's not what we're called to do. So, hear and your soul shall live. As Spurgeon says, think about this, friends. It is ours then to give men something worth their hearing. 
in fact, to instruct them. There's a great, look at this. Look at Luke. Luke. Here's an example of this. Fifteen one. So Spurgeon says, it is ours then to give something worth their hearing. In fact, to instruct them. We are sent to evangelize or to preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, 15. So look in Luke 15, 1. Look what Christ does. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Note the audience. All right? Luke 15, 1, note the audience. Now, all the tax collectors. How many here like the IRS? (laughs) And the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. What we can gather from this is that he was an approachable person, that Christ was approachable, that he welcomed human confidence and was willing that men should commune with him, that he wanted people to come. We understand from Scripture that, that, that Christ was amongst crowds that, that were in desperate need. Not, not all of them are in need, but he sat with tax collectors and there were prostitutes. We understand the stories about that. Not that he was engaged in any of that, not that he was condoning any of that behavior, but he was certainly present and giving an opportunity for them to hear what he had to say. All the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. His message was salty. It had savor to it. They wanted to hear what he had to say. What is this man saying? What is he talking about? Who is this person? The same can happen with you. And so Spurgeon goes on to say, This is not done, this idea of to give men something worth their hearing. This is not done. Now think about this. What is worth their hearing? What do you think Christ is telling the tax collectors and the sinners? Well, Luke kind of gets into that. He's giving them the gospel. He's talking about salvation in himself in that context. And Spurgeon says that which is worth hearing only happens unless we teach them the great truths of the gospel the gospel. And he goes on to say this, gospel means good news. To listen to some preachers, you would imagine that the gospel was a pinch of sacred snuff to make them wake up or a bottle of strong spirits to excite their brains. It is nothing of the kind. See, again, he's talking about the Jesus jelly approach. Oh, kind of give them something that makes them kind of perk up for a minute, but doesn't get to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. The gospel is news, Spurgeon says. There is information and instruction in it concerning matters that men need to know and statements in it calculated to bless those who hear it. It is not a magical incantation or charm whose force consists in a collection of sounds. It is a revelation of facts and truths that require knowledge and belief. Remember, The critical issue is one of what? Faith, right? 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. So when you're talking to people, you've got to get them to the word of God. You've got to get them to the place where they understand what God's word says about them, who they are, what they are, and why they need a savior. So when Paul talks about what he does in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, he's talking about the fact that we need to get to the point where we're talking about facts and truth that require knowledge and belief. Faith is what? Consent, knowledge, trust. Not necessarily in that order. But that's what it's made up of. Spurgeon goes on to write this, the gospel is a reasonable system. It appeals to men's understanding. A matter for thought and consideration It appeals to the conscience and reflecting powers. And it does. Hence, if we do not teach men something, we may shout, believe, believe, believe. But what are they to believe? Each exhortation requires a corresponding instruction or it will mean nothing. Escape from what? This question requires for its answer the doctrine of the punishment of sin. Fly, but where? To, this answer, to answer this question, you must preach Christ and his wounds and the clear doctrine of atonement by sacrifice. Faith in what? In who? Jesus Christ. What is sin? What is the evil of sin? What are the consequences of sin? Be converted, but what is it to be converted? By what power can we be converted? What from? What to? He asked. So, friends, when we, when we get to these passages that we have in Colossians, we need to make certain that we're understanding that Paul's not simply talking about being kind of wince, just winsome to the point of ineffective, winsome to the point of opening doors, but still getting the message communicated. The salt part of it is so essential. That is the gospel. We can't ignore that. Nor do we capitulate to the point, like so many churches have done today, where the message is so watered down that people don't even know there is a message. What do you think people saw when that pastor paraded out there in a costume dressed like Woody and his wife dressed as Clarabelle? What do you think they remembered that they were dressed like Woody and Clarabelle? That's not what Paul's talking about. We don't get to the point of the absurd. Paul didn't do that. That's not the meaning of the idea behind being a messenger that has salt. We still have to get them to the point where they understand what the gospel is about. Spurgeon continues to write, Note well, my friends, that he who is successful in soul winning will prove to have been wise in the judgment of those who see the end as well as the beginning. Even if I were utterly selfish and had no concern for anything but my own happiness, I would choose, if God allowed, to be a soul winner. For I never knew perfect, overflowing, unutterable happiness of the purest and most ennobling order until I first heard of one who had sought and found a Savior through my means. I remember the thrill of joy that went through me. No young mother ever rejoiced as much over her firstborn child. No warrior was ever so exalted over a hard-won victory. Oh, the joy of knowing that a sinner once at enmity with God has been reconciled to him by the Holy Spirit through the words spoken by our feeble lips. That is the privilege of being a witness of the gospel. And so as we think about the message that's presented we have to keep mindful of the fact, Paul's point here in Colossians 4, 6, a sinner has a heart as well as a head, a sinner has emotions as well as thoughts, 
and we must appeal to both. A sinner's emotions must be stirred, and the stirring comes through the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word. Well, the idea then that we have to get to to get a person to that point is is significant for us as well. And we must consider how it is that we do it, and I think there's a good approach to three R's of evangelism that I think are quite effective for us. Again, Spurgeon, reaching into Spurgeon's treasure trove of information, he spoke of these three R's, and I think they're wise for us to consider. The idea, first and foremost, of ruin. Ruin. This is what man has done. How did man get in this miserable condition? What happened? Well, we understand that from the book of Genesis, Adam fell and all under an Adam. And so we are condemned and stand condemned as his progeny. Spurgeon asked this question, how did man, how did man get in this miserable condition, the ruin part of it? R.C. Sproul frames it another way. And his question is one I hear often in gospel conversations, saved from what? What am I saved from? What's the point? What are you talking about? What's the big deal? I'm a good person. I get along with people. I'm generally a good guy. What what do I need saved from? And then we kind of stand there and stammer for a minute and we kind of say, well, have you you a little Jesus jelly on it? And you think about Jesus? You ever think about him? Oh, yeah, I think he was a good guy. You've got to keep going. Talk to him about the fact. Are you a sinner? Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? Ever told a falsehood? What's going to happen because of that? Do you know what God's law says about liars? Do you know that you stand condemned because of that? Do you know that the wages of sin is death? Continue to have that conversation. And so we have to get them to the ruin part. Spurgeon says that in our culture, we have to get people to the beginning, and that's important. And sadly, there's such high levels of biblical illiteracy, even amongst Christians, it's hard to get people to the beginning because they don't know the beginning, which is sad, which is very sad. We have to get people to the point that the good news is appropriate to hear and talk to them about redemption. What is it that God has done? This is the good news that trumps the bad news. This is the point that we talk to them about the idea that there is a solution to the problem. How do we get the guy in Romans chapter 3 into heaven? I've asked that question a hundred times. How do you do it? It's by God's grace, and you talk to them about the fact that they're in need of God's grace. You talk to them about the fact that they stand condemned, that they're under judgment, and the only solution to the peril that they face is Christ alone. Don't talk to them about how Jesus is going to make them happier and that they're going to be more content and their kids are going to behave better and they'll have nicer cars or bigger houses or better jobs. That's not the gospel. That's nothing. That's Joel Osteen heresy. And then we get to regeneration. The idea that they must understand that there is need for salvation in the context of new birth. You must be born again. Let's use Jesus as our model. Right out of the gate with Nicodemus, he takes him right there. You must be born again. And he explains to Nicodemus what that means. We must be able to explain that. We have to understand it, of course. 
We understand that regeneration precedes faith, don't we? I hope. The new birth, a person just doesn't inherently have faith. Not saving faith. So we have to make certain that they understand that there is something about being born again in the context of salvation. And so we talk to people about the fact that they're ruined, they're in need of redemption, and they must be born again. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. And you may say to me, well, pastor, they won't ever hear me. It's not up to you to make them hear. You just have to tell them. You understand that? Here, make sure I, I want to make certain you get this. You don't have to make them believe. You can't. Your obligation is to tell them. God will do the work. This is hard for a pastor. I want to make you believe. I'm going to come out there and smack you, shake you, hold you on the ground, get Matt involved in some way. <laughs> we'll make them believe, Matt. We'll get them one way or the other. They're going to leave believing. No. And I think this is the problem. We think that somehow our responsibility is to make them believe. You cannot make them believe. No more than you could walk into a funeral home and make a corpse stand up and walk out of the room. Do you understand that? Your obligation is to give them the words of life. The words of life. I remember, I'll use one of my own personal examples. Uh, Dell's father slugger he asked me to come over and talk to him he's dying of cancer he's sick he's got a few days left i'm thinking to myself what on earth am i going to say to this man his reputation precedes him in all respects hard callous difficult to talk to and and del and i are in the room and he's sitting there on the bed and I just give it to him as straight as I can. I tell him who he is. I tell him that he stands condemned and that Jesus is his only answer. That's it. That conversation was, what, five minutes, Del? Eight minutes, something like that? I'm talking to him. I'm looking at him directly in his face. I'm saying, I, don't, I barely know him, but I just tell him, You're, you stand condemned. Do you understand that you're about to step into eternity and you're going to face a thrice holy God? Do you understand that Jesus Christ lived the life that you never could and that he died for your sins and that there will be no condemnation for you? You're not going to go play golf. You're going to stand before God. That's what I told him. And I told him that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you know what he said to me? Jesus saved me. that so it doesn't have to be tricky but you got to get to the message if i had just gone in and talked to him and said boy you know i've heard you're a good golfer i heard that you love to golf what what good is that if i had talked to him about the fact that he liked to do certain things or that maybe in one point in time of his life he was a nice person or or something along those lines what good would it have done it would have done nothing. It would have done absolutely nothing for him eternally. I could not make him believe 
Dell had witnessed to him for the, a good portion of his life. Others had talked to him. He was hard, was he not? All I can do is say the words. The believing part was brought about by God's grace. By God's grace. And that was it. Now, there are some people who get mad about that. Think about the thief on the cross. Think about that. So, friends, what I'm saying to you is this, and Paul is saying to you in 6-4, or 4-6, rather, when the opportunities present themselves, you must get them to the point where they understand what God's Word is saying about them and the resolution to that problem. And the problem is resolved through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't talk to them about a good life, a happy life, a better life. You get them to the cross and you get them to Christ. And you better do it quick because you don't know how much time. He died how many days later? Six days. So you just don't know. Tell people. Tell them. And do it with a sense of urgency, as Spurgeon would say, feeling some of the heat on your own hands. Hell is hot and hell is real. And people are there now and they're going to go there. So there's your, there's your hellfire and brimstone. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the exhortation that it contains. Help us to be more urgent in the communication of the gospel to people who are in desperate need of it. Forgive us for those occasions when we've not been what we ought to be in this regard, and we are grateful that we can come to you in Christ's name and be forgiven for those things, but help us to be more sensitive to the great desperate need that people are in with respect to their sin and their eternity. May we be great gospel proclaimers to a lost and dying world, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.